It's Tuesday. You know what that means. It's time for the best and brightest moment of your week. It's time for that show you love and that show that you seek. It's time for nonsense. 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 The show. The best damn show you know. The following program contains scenes and language of a frank and explicit nature. Viewer discretion is advised. Under 17, not admitted without parent. Welcome. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Nonsense the Show, episode 242. Kicking it off with Dokin into the fire. You leave your spell, your eyes they beckon me. Your lips they speak lies and misery. Gentlemen, this is Nonsense, the show, episode 242, an episode I am tentatively titling Trouble in Tombstone. My name is Captain Nick, and as always, I will be your ringmaster for this little circus of the absurd. I am known as the Minister of Nonsense and the finest pirate captain operating in California in modern times. Tonight, we have an incredible episode centered around the incredible boom town and Wild West desperado haven of Tombstone, Arizona. We're going to talk about Captain's Film Institute, entry number 29, Tombstone. We're going to talk about Doc Holliday, one of the most legendary figures of the American West. We're going to talk about the gunfight at the OK Corral, and I'm going to give you the most accurate version I've been able to find of what exactly happened and why. We're going to talk about a ghost story. We're going to talk about micronations and more, but first... Nonsense the show is brought to you by the fine feathered gentleman down there in Paso Robles, California at Paso Wine Shine. That make delectable alcoholic beverages that'll get you drunk and make you prettier to the opposite sex. Or the same sex, whatever you're into. We're not here to judge. You know, go buy their booze, tell them Captain Nick sent you, and uh, they'll be happy. And Pat's awesome, he gives great hugs, so go visit. Uh, Alright. Alright. Thank you, Dokin, for Into the Fire, your hit song. Oh, the former theme song of NWA Power, one of the finest retro wrestling shows in the pre-pandemic era. 
Uh, I don't know what it's like now. I haven't been able to watch it because I'm not going to pay for it. Um, what do we have in store for you tonight? Well, I already told you. It's a Tombstone episode. This is the Tombstone special, Trouble in Tombstone, episode 242. A lot of T sounds on today's show, so alliteration is the name of the game. What are we going to get to first? Well, first of all, we're going to start off, and I'm going to tell you a little bit about what's going on in my life lately. Um, and it's not going to take long because really what it comes down to is my life is busy as fuck. I don't have time to do a bunch of the cool shit I used to do because I'm busy doing a bunch of new cool shit. I have an incredible girlfriend. You guys know about that. I'm not going to get mushy. We already talked about it. What's up, Maggie? How you doing, girl? Green light. Uh, I have been busy working this incredible job at Grab South Brewery up there in Katati, right across the street from the Lowe's, just down the way from Mercy Wellness. Look for the mural. You can't miss us. Come on and visit me uh, Thursday, Friday, Saturday evenings. That's when I'll be there. I'll pour you a beer. We'll tell some cool stories. It'll be a good time. You don't want to miss out. Um, and, and I've just generally been doing a lot of really fun life stuff. The problem that I find that I'm dealing with is because I haven't had a set schedule that other people rely on me for in a very long time. Uh, there's just a transitional period, and I'm doing pretty good with it, to be honest with you. But um, occasionally I do realize, like, fuck, man, it's been three-plus weeks since I've had 20 minutes to sit down and just breathe. Typically it would take me a couple of days, you know, uh, you know, several hours over a couple of days to put this show together, and now I'm doing it and you know, four hours and whatever little snippets I can get throughout the week. Um, so it's just a new schedule. It's just something I'm adjusting to. And, and what I keep realizing every time I start like griping a little bit or getting a little bummed or a little stressed out or a little burnt out about it is like, man, this is a really cool problem to have because all of the things that are on my plate right now are number one, things that I chose and number two, things that I love and enjoy and I'm getting, uh, getting a lot from. They're valuable parts of my life and I don't want to lose any of them. And so... It's this really nice feeling of like, wow, I have too many good things to do. What a phenomenal problem to have. So in short, I'm a very blessed man. I feel really good. Um, And that's really all the personal shit I'm going to tell you today, except that everything's going great. So um, I had uh, an interview today for an incredible opportunity. There's one more thing I'm going to tell you about. Um, Several of you gave me good wishes on Instagram, sent me good vibes, sent me private messages. I want to thank you all for that. Um, I really appreciate it. I don't know how it all went yet. I feel good about it. We'll see what they say. They're going to get back to me at some point, and I'll let you know if I move on to the next uh, next round um, of interviews. Uh, I have some learning to do. There's a major hole in my game for this particular position, which thankfully they gave me a couple resources. And so, you know, as if I don't have enough going on, I'm going to add some courses and some extra, you know, educational reading to do. But it's all going to be worth it. And now, here we go. Prepare to be astonished. It is time for me, Captain Nick, to tell you, the loyal listeners of Nonsense, the show, a little story about a ghost. Are there restless spirits wandering the land? Haunting, teasing, poltergeisting their way through the lives of the living? When you die, do you end up on the other side, or is it possible to get stuck here in some kind of hellacious purgatory limbo? I don't know the truth. I don't know the answer. What I do know is that I have a ghost story for you tonight unlike any you've ever heard before. Because tonight, I'm going to tell you the ghost story of legendary train robber, Black Jack Ketchum. Dun, dun, dun. Thomas Blackjack Ketchum was the only person ever hanged in Clayton, New Mexico. 
He was also the only man ever hanged for train robbery in the entire state of New Mexico, a law that was later found to be unconstitutional. Uh, Of course, that was decided just a little bit too late for poor Blackjack Ketchum. But we're not here to learn the story about Blackjack Ketchum. What we're here to know is that he's dead. And somebody met him afterwards. Remembering his experience long, long ago, a gentleman tells a story of meeting Blackjack Ketchum while camping at the Philmont Scout Ranch. He and several other scouts were backpacking through the mountains, visiting various historic sites, including an abandoned gold mine, a ghost town, and even one of Blackjack Ketchum's outlaw hideouts. The hideout was a large rock overhang, and the scouts thought it would be fun to camp there for the night. Young men, adventurous, don't really know what the world's all about. Yeah, that'd be fun. Let's go camp in the dead outlaw's uh, hideout. However, their leader insisted that they stay at a nearby designated camping site. Disappointed in the decision, several of the scouts set up, several of the scouts set up their tents several hundred feet away from the leader's tent, hoping they would have a chance to sneak back to the hideout later that night. At about 11 p.m., when the rest of the camp was fast asleep, five of the scouts gathered their sleeping bags and quietly stole back to the hideout. They set up camp under the overhang and built a fire, which they sat around talking about their trip. When the fire burned down to nothing more than red coals, the scouts settled down in their sleeping bags for some rest. This unnamed storyteller drifted off to sleep thinking about none other than Blackjack Ketchum. Until suddenly... He was awakened by a noise in the bushes. He said that he felt paralyzed, unable to move, and tried to call out to the others, but his throat was all knotted up. He couldn't speak. And then he saw a cowboy, dressed all in black, come running out of the bushes toward the hideout. He said the man was mostly solid, but some parts of him appeared to be translucent. He described the man as filthy dirty with a tattered hat, clothes from the 1800s, and terribly yellowed teeth. His face was very red, glistening with sweat, with lots of facial hair, and the apparition even held a revolver. The cowboy was apparently unaware of the scout, but the boy was very scared indeed, as much by his inability to move than by the man himself. As he watched, a strange fog emanated from the tree line across from the small stream, and he could hear men yelling unintelligibly, and then muffled gunfire. The cowboy turned and fired his revolver six times into the trees and then ran and stood right over the scout. The cowboy was wounded in the shoulder and discharged six shell casings from his revolver right on top of the boy. As the cowboy was reloading and the scout watched, the casings disappeared as they fell onto his sleeping bag. The cowboy then reloaded his revolver, fired additional shots into the trees, and suddenly turned and saw the scout. The expression on the cowboy's face indicated that the scout had just suddenly appeared before his eyes. The cowboy seemed to be confused and confounded, while the scout was, of course, terrified. He's just a little boy. Then the cowboy uncocked his pistol, looking at the scout very closely, and said, You're not supposed to be here. And then disappeared into thin air. Eventually, the scout was able to go back to sleep, but he had to be shaken repeatedly by his fellow campers before being woken up in the morning. As the scouts broke camp, the boy told his fellow campers about the dream. Of course, 
They didn't believe him. They were merely amused by the story. But as the scout rolled up his sleeping bag and prepared to head back to the main camp, he found six shell casings in the dust. Later, when they returned to base camp, the scout visited an old saloon where a photograph of Black Jack Ketchum was displayed prominently. He looked at the photograph, pointed, and told his friends that that photograph was the same man that he had seen at the hideout the night before. When he told his friends, they brushed him off again as setting them up for a big hoax. And the scout, dismayed, never spoke about it again. Though he did keep the shell casings. After he returned home, he managed to find a gun expert to check with. And that gun expert said the casings were in fact dated from sometime around 1878. But mysteriously, they were in almost brand new condition and the gunpowder could still be smelt in them. In fact... The gunpowder that this expert smelled was one that was used in the last century, but is not in use today. As you would expect, the scout kept those shell casings for years, but unfortunately, after moving away from home for college, a job, a girl, who knows, his mother threw them out, along with several other items the boy had saved, such as comic books and baseball cards. What's the truth of the tale of the ghost of Black Jack Ketchum? Well, you'll have to go find out for yourself. Head on down to Clayton, New Mexico. Find Black Jack's hideout and have a little camping trip. You never know what you might find. That's a cool story. I like that one. And now, ladies and gentlemen, it's time for this week's episode, this week's edition, rather, of the Schmoop Song. This one, of course, is by the legendary, uh, legendary 90s group, Belle Biv DeVoe. We're talking about poison. Enjoy it. I'll be back with you shortly. Yeah, Spider-Man and Freezing, full effect. Uh-huh. Ready, Ron? I'm ready. I'm ready, Slick, are you? Oh, yeah. Take it down. Girl, I must warn you. I sense something strange in my mind. Yo, situation is. Let's kill it because we're running out of time.
fellow like the vote getting paid late. So better lay low, scheming on hot money and the whole shit. The low pro ho should be cut like an afro. So what you saying, huh? She's winning you, but I know she's a loser. How did you know me and a crew used to do her? All right, thank you, Belle Biv DeVoe, for your hit single, Poison. And now, ladies and gentlemen, it's time for us to delve into the, uh, let's let's get into the meat and potatoes of the episode. Let's delve into the roving boomtown of Tombstone, Arizona. Ladies and gentlemen, it's time for me to tell you the tale of the most legendary gunfight of the American West. There are very few other with the notoriety the mystery, the intrigue, and the media representation of the gunfight at the OK Corral. The gunfight at the OK Corral was a 30-second shootout between lawmen led by Virgil Earp and members of a loosely organized group of outlaws called the Cowboys, including Ike Clanton, that occurred at about 3 p.m. on Wednesday, October 26, 1881, in Tombstone, Arizona Territory, United States. It is generally regarded as the most famous shootout in the history of the American Wild West. The gunfight was the result of a long-simmering feud with Billy Claiborne, Ike and Billy Clanton and Tom and Frank McClowry on one side, and Town Marshal Virgil Earp, Special Policeman Morgan, mm, Morgan and Wyatt Earp, and Temporary Policeman Doc Holliday on the other side. Billy Clanton and both McClowry brothers were killed. Ike Clanton, Billy Claiborne, and Wes Fuller ran from the fight, while Virgil, Morgan, and Holiday were wounded. And mysteriously, miraculously, Wyatt was unharmed. Wyatt is often erroneously regarded as the central figure in the shootout, although his brother Virgil was Tombstone Town Marshal and Deputy U.S. Marshal that day and had far more experience as a sheriff, constable, marshal, and soldier in combat. The shootout has come to represent a period of the American Old West when the frontier was virtually an open range for outlaws, largely unopposed by law enforcement officers who were often spread thin over vast and dangerous territories. It was not well known to the American public until 1931 when Stuart Lake published the initially well-received biography, Wyatt Earp, Frontier Marshal, just two years after Wyatt Earp's death. Despite its name, the gunfight did not actually take place within or next to the OK Corral, which fronted Allen Street and had a rear entrance lined with horse stalls on Fremont Street. The shootout actually took place in a narrow lot on the side of C.S. Fly's photo- mm, photographic studio on Fremont Street, six doors west of the OK Corral's rear entrance. So you could a- appropriately call it the shootout near the OK Corral. <laughs> Some members of the two opposing parties were initially only about six feet apart. About 30 shots were fired within that 30-second duel, and Ike Clanton subsequently filed murder charges against the Earps and Holiday. But after a 30-day preliminary hearing and a brief stint in jail, the lawmen were proven to have acted within the law. The gunfight was not the end of the conflict, though. On December 28, 1881, Virgil Earp was ambushed and maimed in a murder attempt by the Cowboys. On March 18, 1882, a cowboy fired from a dark alley through the glass door of Campbell and Hatch's saloon and billiard parlor, killing Morgan Herb. The suspects in both incidents furnished alibis supplied by other cowboys and subsequently were not indicted. Wyatt Earp, newly appointed as Deputy U.S. Marshal in Cochise County, 
then took matters into his own hands in a personal vendetta. He stepped onto the vengeance trail. He was pursued by county sheriff and oft-times rival Johnny Beham, who had received a warrant from Tucson for Wyatt's killing of Frank Stilwell. But what event spurred the gunfight? Why did it happen? Why did these men who had a little rivalry suddenly decide to blow it all up in a haze of gunfire and black powder smoke? Well, intrepid listeners, I'm about to tell you, so settle in and hold on to your butts. Tombstone, located in the Arizona Territory near the Mexican border, was founded in March 1879 after silver was discovered in the area. Like many frontier mining boom towns, Tombstone grew rapidly. At its founding, it had a population of just 100 citizens, and only two years later, in late 1881, the population was more than 7,000 people, excluding Chinese, Mexicans, women, and children, making it the largest boomtown in the American Southwest. Silver mining and its attendant wealth attracted many professionals and merchants who brought their wives and their families. With them came churches and ministers. And by 1881, the town boasted fancy restaurants, a bowling alley, four churches, an ice house, a school, an opera house, two banks, three newspapers, an ice cream parlor, 110 saloons, 14 gambling halls, and numerous brothels, and a partridge in a pear tree. All situated among a number of dirty, hard-scrabble mines. Of course, in a town like this, lawless as it was, horse rustlers and bandits from the countryside often came to town, and shootings were frequent. In the 1880s, illegal smuggling and theft of cattle, alcohol, and tobacco across the Mexico-United States border, about 30 miles from Tombstone, were very, very common. The Mexican government assessed heavy export taxes on these items, and smugglers earned a handsome profit by stealing them in Mexico and then selling them across the border. James, Virgil, and Wyatt Earp arrived in Tombstone on December, er, f- mm, December 1st, 1879 when the small town was mostly composed of tents as living quarters, a few saloons and other assorted buildings, and, of course, the mines. Virgil had been hired as a a deputy U.S. marshal for eastern Pima County with his offices in Tombstone only days before his arrival. In June 1881, he was also appointed as Tombstone's town marshal. So not only is he a deputy U.S. marshal, a federal policeman, but now he is essentially the chief of police in Tombstone, Arizona. Though he was not universally liked by the townspeople, the, mm, though they were not universally liked by the townspeople, the Earps tended to protect the interests of the town's business owners and residents. Even so, and despite the rivalry, Wyatt helped protect cowboy Curly Bill Brocious from being lynched after he accidentally killed Tombstone Town Marshal Fred White, which is reflected in the CFI film of the week, Tombstone. In contrast, Cochise County Sheriff Johnny Beham was generally sympathetic to the interests of the rural ranchers and members of the loosely organized outlaw group called the Cochise County Cowboys, or simply the Cowboys. So you have a situation where you have a town marshal whose responsibility is to the town, the business owners, the citizens of the town, and you have the county sheriff who decides his responsibility is to the ranchers and the members of the outlaw group called the Cowboys, the people outside the town. It's a natural situation for a rivalry. Now, it's important to note that in that time and in that region, the term cowboy generally meant an outlaw. Legitimate cowmen were instead referred to as cattle herders or ranchers. As Tombstone resident George Parson wrote in his diary, a cowboy is a rustler at times, and a rustler is a synonym for desperado, bandit, outlaw, and horse thief. 
The San Francisco Examiner wrote in an editorial at the time, Cowboys are the most reckless class of outlaws in that wild country. Infinitely worse than the ordinary robber. Now at that time during the 1880s in Cochise County, it was an insult to call a legitimate cattleman a cowboy. Now, of course, with, uh, with many stories of this era, with many important events of the time, there are conflicting accounts of what actually happened. Many of the sources describing the events leading up to the gunfight and details of the gunfight itself conflict with each other. Newspapers of the day were not above taking sides, which is so unlike newspapers of today, and news reporting often editor- editor- mm, editorialized on issues to reflect the publisher's interests. Again, thankfully, we've eradicated that scourge from the American conversation, eh? John Clune, publisher of the Tombstone Epitaph, helped organize a, quote, committee of safety, otherwise known as a vigilance committee, in Tombstone in late September 1881. He was elected as Tombstone's first mayor under the new city charter of 1881, and he and his newspaper tended to side with the interests of local business owners and, of course, thusly, supported Deputy U.S. Marshal Virgil Earp. Harry Woods, the publisher of the other major newspaper, The Daily Nugget, was an undersheriff to Behan. He and his newspaper tended to side with Behan, the Cowboys, some of whom were part-time ranchers and landowners, and the rural interests of the ranchers. So again, very much unlike the America of today, you have a divide between urban and rural residents. That resulted in some friction, some problems, and some political maneuvering. Much, is what, much of what is known of, of the event is based on a month-long preliminary hearings held afterward, generally known as the Spicer hearings. Reporters from both newspapers covered the hearings and recorded the testimony there and at the coroner's inquest. But only the reporter from the Nugget knew shorthand, and thus, the testimony recorded by the court recorder and the two newspapers varied greatly. According to the Earp's version of events, the fight, w- mm, the fight was in self-defense because the Cowboys, armed in violation of local ordinance, defied a lawful order to hand over their weapons and drew their pistols instead. The Cowboys maintained that they raised their hands, offered no resistance, and were shot in cold blood by the Earps. Sorting out who was telling the truth was difficult then and remains so to this day. Though usually opposing each other in the reporting of events, reporting by both the Epitaph and the Nugget initially supported the lawman's version of the gunfight. Woods, the publisher of the pro-cowboy Nugget, was out of town during the hearings, and an experienced reporter by the name of Richard Rule wrote the story. The Nugget staff had a close relationship with Beham, but Rule's story, as printed in the Nugget the day after the shootout, backed up the Earp's version of events. This varied widely from Behan's and the Cowboys' later court testimony, so of course presented some troubles. Subsequent stories about the gunfight published in the Nugget after that day supported the Behan's and the Cowboys' view of events. Other stories in the Epitaph countered the Nugget's later view entirely and continued to support the lawman. In addition, Dr. George Goodfellow, who examined the Cowboys after their deaths, told the court that an angle of the wound in Billy Clanton's wrist indicated that his hands could not possibly have been in the air, or holding his coats open by the lapels as witnesses loyal to the Cowboys testified in court. What was the outcome of the battle? Well... Both Wyatt and Virgil believed Tom McClory was armed and testified that he had fired at least one shot over the back of a horse. 
Billy Clanton and Frank McClory exchanged gunfire with the lawmen, and during the gunfight, Doc Holliday was bruised by a bullet fired by Frank that stuck, struck his holster and grazed his hip. Virgil Earp was shot through the calf, and he thought Billy Clinton, he thought by Billy Clanton. Morgan Earp was struck across both shoulder blades by a bullet that Morgan thought Frank McClory had fired. Wyatt Earp, of course, was unhurt. And as stated earlier, Tom McClory, his brother Frank, and Billy Clanton were killed in the gunfire. Four days after the shootout, Ike Clanton filed those murder charges against Doc Holliday and the Earps. Wyatt and Holliday were arrested immediately and brought before Justice of the Peace, Wells Spicer, thus leading to the name the Spicer Hearings. Morgan and Virgil were still recovering at home, and so they were not arrested. Only Wyatt and Holliday were required to post the $10,000 bail, which is equivalent in 2020 to $270,000. This bail was paid by their attorney Thomas Fitch, local mine owner E.B. Gage, and Wells Fargo undercover agent Fred Dodge, and other business owners appreciative of the Earp's effort to maintain order and rein in those unruly cowboys. Virgil Earp was suspended as town marshal pending the outcome of his trial, which seems like an appropriate and reasonable thing to do. Spicer took written and oral testimony from a number of witnesses over more than a month's period of time, and accounts by both participants and eyewitnesses were, of course, contradictory. Those loyal to one side or the other told conflicting stories, and independent eyewitnesses who did not know the participants by sight were unable to say for certain who shot first. Cochise County Sheriff Johnny Behan testified on the third day of the hearing. And during his two days on the stand, he gave strong testimony that the Cowboys had not resisted, but either threw up their hands or turned their, and turned their coats to show that they were not armed. Behan's views turned public opinion against the Earps, who were at that time free on bail. He and other prosecution witnesses testified that Tom McClurry was unarmed, that Billy Clanton had his hands in the air, and that neither of the McClurys were troublemakers. They portrayed Ike Clanton and Tom McClary as being unjustly bullied and beaten by the vengeful Earps on the day of the gunfight. Again, this was a long-simmering feud with a lot of events leading up to it. On the strength of the prosecution case, Spicer revoked the bail for Doc and Wyatt Earp and had them jailed on November 7th. They would spend the next 16 days in jail. However, after hearing all the evidence... Justice Spicer ruled on November 30th that Virgil, as the lawman in charge that day, had acted within his office and that there was not enough evidence to indict the men. He described Frank McClurry's insistence that he would not give up his weapons unless the marshal and his deputies also gave up their arms as, quote, proposition both monstrous and startling. He noted that the prosecution claimed the Cowboys' purpose was to leave town, yet Ike Clanton and Billy Claiborne did not have their weapons with them, which they certainly would have in that dangerous territory if they were leaving town. Spicer noted that the doctor who examined the dead cowboys established that the wounds they received could not have occurred if their hands and arms had been in the positions that prosecution witnesses described. Now, though he sided with the Earps, he did not condone all of their actions and criticized Virgil Earps' use of Wyatt and Holiday as deputies. But he did conclude that no laws were broken, and he said that the evidence indicated that the Earps and Holiday acted within the law, and that Holiday and Wyatt had been properly deputized by Virgil Earp. The public perception of the Earp brothers' actions at the time were wildly divergent. Even today, the event and its participants are viewed differently by opinionated admirers and strong-minded detractors. The controversy stimulates ongoing interest in the gunfight and related events to this very day. 
The incident has become a fixture in American history due to the personal nature of the feud between the Earps and the McClowry brothers. Uh, correction, the McClowry and Clanton brothers and the symbolism of the fight between the lawmen and the cowboys. The cowboys maimed Virgil and murdered Morgan, but they escaped prosecution. And Wyatt's extra-legal campaign for revenge captured people's attention and admiration. The gunfight and its aftermath stand for the um, the change overcoming America as the western frontier ceased to exist and civilization spread westward. As a nation that was rapidly industrializing pushed out what had largely up until that point been an agrarian um, economy. (laughs) So whatever your views on the gunfight at the OK Corral, now you know the truth. At least as far as we know it. And moving forward, before we start our next story, I want to go ahead and dedicate this next song to my dear brother, my friend, my compadre in arms, one General J. Tater Tate, the finest Doc Holliday impersonator I know living in this golden state. And as a result, we're going to sing a song that Tater and I have sung many times together. That is our road trip and adventure day song. This is the Dirty Heads with Sloth's Revenge. Sing along if you know the words. We will see you in three and a half minutes. I am everything that I said I am. Keep my shit tight, man. Motherfucking Hoover Dam. And I ain't cracking anytime soon. My mindset is fine too. This where it will be mine soon. Showdown in high noon. Sharp as a harpoon. Crash like a monsoon. Style like a costume. I'm constantly awesome. Voice fresh as spring. Yo, my beats about to blossom. Caution. Get out the pit when I'm moshing. My friends are a high. Yeah, I'm nice and I got them that way. We bows on parade. My bows full of weed, man. Higher than a pterodactyl. You can call me caveman. California raisin. Hear me through the grapevine. Dirty BB days again, but man, I'm feeling just fine. I be out in Vegas while you're it's just a state line I ain't never stopping Till I finally feel like I got mine We're never gonna lay down We ain't going nowhere You can come and give a try Our bond is on blood And thicker than water Like Goonies never say die Oh Cause Goonies never say oh Cause Goonies never say die An avalanche. I get stupid when I want to rain, man. I keep it flowing now. I do the rain dance. Man, everybody loves me. Call me Rain Man. Here I go. I be getting so high like I stand and I'm on tippy toes. Spread my wings and fly, but I got two arms where my wings should go. Hungry as an animal. Tearing down the devil's dough. He's selling me a soul for all the lyrics in my arsenal. Eyes red, lungs full. Half master black bull. I'm about to kill this beat and throw it in a drowning pool. Hair long style, cool. Lyrics fresh, jet fuel. On this track, no looking back. I'm hippie like a hacky sack. Smoother than a Cadillac. Leave MCs needing medivac Yeah, I lost my ship a bitch You know I got my passion back Locked inside my temper trap I'm laughing at y'all pussycats Cause I ain't never stopping Till the top is what I'm looking at We're never gonna lay down We ain't going nowhere You can come and give a try Our bond is on blood And thicker than water Like Goonies never say die Oh Cause Goonies never say oh Cause Goonies never say die Oh, 
Okay, listen up, kiddos. I'm a shark, you're a minnow. Balls on your chin, call your bitch Jay Leno. Don't go swimming, cause your shit sounds minstrel. And we ain't here to play Dr. Dre South Central. Spit my bitch, you it's to make you rub your tits and shit. Have your body moving, shaking hips with thorn fits. Willie sitting high, just as out of time as nine. Now I'm flowing my DeLorean. Marty McFly, yeah, anybody home? Two spliffs to the dome. It's a headshot, dreadnought, noobs get pwned. Yeah, I fucking said it, it was so last year. I got a pack full of gear and a trunk full of beer. We're never gonna lay down, we ain't going nowhere You can come and give a try Our bond is our blood and thicker than water Like Goonies never say die We're never gonna lay down, we ain't going nowhere You can come and give a try Our bond is our blood and thicker than water Like Goonies never say die Shout out General Jay Tater Tate, one of the finest friends I've ever had, a man that I'm very, very proud of, very excited for, and uh, just really glad to know. So uh, this sip of beer is for you, General Jay Tater Tate. Mm. And in honor of the general, it is now time to get on to the legendary figure segment of episode 242 of Nonsense, the show. That's right, ladies and gentlemen, it's time for us to talk about one Doc Holliday, the deadly doctor of the American West. According to Wyatt Earp, speaking about his dear friend Doc Holliday, I found him a loyal friend in good company. He was a dentist whom necessity had made a gambler, a gentleman whom disease had made a vagabond, and a philosopher whom life had made a caustic wit. A long, lean, blonde fellow nearly dead with consumption, and at the same time the most skillful gambler, a nerviest, speediest, and deadly man with a six-gun I ever knew. Doc Holliday was a gambler, vagabond, gentleman, and gunfighter. A friend to Wyatt Earp, he was deputized in Tombstone, Arizona, before the famous gunfight at the O.K. Corral. When John, later known as Doc, was just 15, his mother died. On September 16, 1866, of consumption, now known as tuberculosis. This was a terrible blow to the teenager, as his relationship with his mother was very close. Only compounding this loss, his father remarried just three months later. The family status in the community, as well as the fact that his cousin, Robert Holliday, founded the Pennsylvania College of Dental Surgery, probably encouraged John's choice of profession. In 1870, he enrolled in the college in Philadelphia, and on March 1st, 1872, he was conferred the degree of Doctor of Dental Surgery, along with 26 other graduates. Shortly after graduation, Doc Holliday began work as a dentist in the office of Dr. Arthur C. Ford in Atlanta, Georgia. Though an educated and respected man, John Henry was a bit of a hot-tempered southerner, and, quick, and he was quick to use a gun. On one occasion, there were African-American men swimming in his favorite swimming hole, and the outraged Doc startled the shoot. Mm, correction. The outraged Doc started shooting over their heads to scare them off. While one of the black men shot back, thankfully, no one was killed. This seems to be the first account of Doc's love affair with the six-shooter, and as always with Tales from the West... The stories of the incident tend to vary. Shortly after starting his dental practice, Doc Holliday discovered that he had contracted tuberculosis, most likely from his mother before she died. Doc consulted a number of physicians who all told him that he only had a short time to live and he was encouraged to move to a drier climate to extend his life. Very common medical advice in that period. And so on October, mm, so in October 1873, Doc Holliday packed up and headed for Dallas, Texas which was the end of the railroad at the time. 
However, Bat Masterson, who is a future legendary figure, would write in 1907 that Doc moved to the due to the shooting incident back in... Do- mm. <laughs> Words are hard. Sip a beer for a professional broadcast. Bat Masterson would write in 1907 that Doc... He ended up moving due to the shooting incident back in Georgia, which would become a theme, as you are about to find out, of Doc involving himself in shootings and then later having to flee and move to a new spot. Initially, Doc worked with another dentist by the name of Dr. John A. Seeger in Dallas. However, as the coughing spells racked his body during delicate dental procedures, his business declined, and Holiday was forced to find another way to earn his living. Out West, Doc was a most unusual character, being an extremely educated and refined man where such things were noticeably uncommon. He was fluent in Latin, played the piano very well, and was, quote, a nappy dresser displayed the manners all the time of a southern gentleman. His intelligence made him a natural at gambling, and this quickly became his only means of support, where he was both an active participant as well as a poker and faro dealer. However, Doc was also miserable with the knowledge of his impending death. He was moody, a heavy drinker, and with no fear of death, perhaps was more prone to the life he eventually ended up living. The thin and weakened doctor knew that a career as a gambler was a dangerous profession, requiring that he have the means to protect himself. Dedicated to this mission, he started practicing with a a six-shooter and a long, wicked knife, honing his skills to a deadly edge. The first account of a gunfight occurred on January 2nd, 1875, when Doc and a local saloon keeper named Austin had a disagreement, which quickly turned to violence. While several several shots were fired, neither man was struck, and both men were eventually arrested, which was reported in the Dallas Weekly Herald. At first, the local citizens thought the gunfight was amusing, until just a few days later, when Doc again got into a disagreement, this time killing a prominent citizen with two carefully aimed bullets. Forced to flee Dallas with a posse right behind him, Holiday headed to Jacksboro, Texas, a wild and lawless cow town near an army post. There he found a job dealing pharaoh, now carrying a gun and a shoulder holster and another on his hip, along with the deadly knife. Having by this point become an expert shot, he was involved in three more gunfights in a short amount of time. Though he left one man dead in these three fights, no action was taken against him in the lawless cow town. However, in the summer of 1876, disagreement again led to violence, resulting in Doc's killing of a soldier from Fort Richardson, which brought the United States government into the investigation. A reward was quickly offered for his capture, and he was aggressively pursued by the Army, the Texas Rangers, the U.S. Marshals, local lawmen, and even simple citizens anxious to collect on the bounty. Aware of his imminent hanging, if captured, Doc fled for his life to Apache country country in Kansas Territory, now known as Colorado. Making stops along the way in Pueblo, Leadville, Georgetown, and Central City, he left three more dead bodies in his wake. So he's quickly racking up quite an impressive kill count. Finally, settling down in Denver, he assumed the name of Tom Mackey while dealing Pharaoh at Babbitt's house. Relatively unknown for a while, that all changed when he got involved in an argument with a man called Bud Ryan, a well-known gambling tough in the area. 
A fight ensued, and Doc nearly cut Ryan's head off with that lethal knife he had trained so hard with. Though Ryan survived, his face and his neck were terribly mutilated, and public resentment forced Doc once again to flee. First to Wyoming, then to New Mexico, and finally back to Texas, where at Fort Griffin, he would fatefully meet both Wyatt Earp and a very special woman known as Big Nose Kate. While dealing cards at John Shancy's saloon, Doc met Mary Catherine Elder Haroni, who went by many names but was most often known as Big Nose Kate. While the dance hall girl and prostitute was attractive, she did have a prominent nose. Kate was tough, stubborn, and with a temper that matched Doc's. She said she worked the business because she liked it, belonging to no man, nor to any house. Wyatt Earp, traveling from Dodge City, was on the trail of a train robber by the name of Dave Rudabaugh. After having been issued an acting commission as U.S. Deputy Marshal to pursue the outlaw out of state, he followed Rudabaugh's trail for over 400 miles. Wyatt visited the largest saloon in town, Shancy's, asking about Rudabaugh. Owner John Shancy said that Rudabaugh had been there earlier in the week, but he didn't know where he, he, didn't know where he was bound. He directed Wyatt to Doc Holliday, who had played cards with Rudabaugh while he was in town. Wyatt, of course, was skeptical about talking to Holiday, as it was well known that Doc hated Lawman. However, when Wyatt found him that evening at Shancy's, he was surprised at Holiday's willingness to talk. Doc told Wyatt he thought that Rudabaugh had backtrailed to Kansas. Wyatt wired this information to Bat, Bat Masterson, sheriff in Dodge City, and the news was instrumental in apprehending Rudabaugh. Following this, the unlikely pair formed a friendship in Shancy's that would last for years and years to come. In 1877, Doc was dealing cards to a local bully by the name of Ed Bailey, who was accustomed to having his own way without being questioned. Bailey was unimpressed with Doc's reputation, and in an attempt to irritate him, he kept picking up the discards and looking at them. Looking at the discards was strictly prohibited by the rules of Western poker, a violation that could force the player to forfeit the pot. Though Holiday warned Bailey twice, the bully ignored him and once again picked up the discards. This time, Doc raked in the pot without showing his hand, nor saying a word. Bailey immediately brought out his pistol from under the table, but before the man could pull the trigger, Doc's lethal knife slashed the man across the stomach. With blood spilled everywhere... Bailey lay sprawled across the table. Knowing that his actions were in self-defense, Doc did not run. However, he was still arrested and incarcerated in a local hotel room, there being, of course, no jail in the town at the time. Bully or no, a vigilante group formed to sink revenge on Halliday for the man's death. Knowing that the mob would quickly overtake the local lawman, Big Nose Kate devised a plan to free Doc from his confines. Setting fire to an old shed, it began to burn rapidly, threatening to engulf the entire town. As everyone else was involved in fighting the fire, she confronted the officer guarding Holiday with a pistol in each hand, disarmed the guard, and the two managed to escape. Hiding out during the night, they headed to Dodge City on stolen horses in the morning, registering at Deacon Cox's boarding house as Dr. and Mrs. J. H. Holiday. Doc so appreciated what Kate did for him that he was determined to make her happy, and he gave up gambling, hanging up his doctor's shingle once again. 
In return, Kate promised to give up the life of prostitution and stop hanging about the saloons. However, Kate couldn't stand the quiet and boredom of respectable living. She told Doc that she was going back to the bright lights and excitement of the dance halls and gambling dens, and consequently, the two split up, as they were destined to do many times during the remainder of Doc's life. It was a volatile relationship, which got Doc into trouble many times as a result of Kate's drunken, well, anger. Of course, Doc went back to gambling, frequenting the Alhambra and dealing cards at the Long Branch Saloon. Though Dodge City citizens thought the friendship between Wyatt and Doc was strange, Wyatt ignored them, and Doc kept to the law while in Dodge City, out of respect for his friend. One night, while Doc was dealing faro in the Long Branch Saloon, a number of Texas cowboys arrived with a herd of cattle. After many weeks on the trail, the rowdy cowboys were ready to let loose. Leading the cowboy mob was a man named Ed Morrison, whom Wyatt had humiliated in Wichita, Kansas and a man named Tobe Driscoll. The cowboys, as a gang, rushed the town, galloping down Front Street with guns blazing, blowing out shop windows and terrifying the citizenry. Entering the Long Branch Saloon, they then began to harass the customers. When Wyatt came through the front door, he came face to face with several awaiting gun barrels and his own mortality. Stepping forward, Morrison sneered, "'Pray and jerk your gun! Your time has come, Erp!' But suddenly, a voice sounded behind Morrison. No, friend, you draw or throw your hands up. It was Doc, his revolver to Morrison's temple. Doc had been in the back of the room, in the back room, his card game interrupted by the havoc out front. Any of you bastards pulls a gun and your leader here loses what's left of his brains. The cowboys, of course, dropped their arms and Wyatt wrapped Morrison over the head with his long barrel colt. Then, relieving Driscoll and Morrison of their arms, he ushered them to the Dodge City Jail. Wyatt never forgot the fact that Doc Holliday saved his life that night in Dodge City. Responding later, Wyatt said, The only way anyone could have appreciated the feeling I had for Doc after the Driscoll-Morrison business would have been to have stood in my boots at the time Doc came through the Long Branch doorway. Later, Kate and Doc, in their constant love-hate relationship, had another of their frequent violent quarrels. Furious, Doc saddled his horse and headed out, eventually winding up in Trinidad, Colorado. Unfortunately, shortly after he arrived, he was goaded into a fight by a young gambler known as Kid Colton. The kid, either wishing to make himself a reputation or very unaware of Doc's gunmanship, wound up dead in the dusty street with two bullets lodged in his miserable flesh. Not wanting to linger after the shooting, Doc rode on to Las Vegas, New Mexico, where in late summer of 1879, he hung, it, he hung out his shingle for the last time. However, this idea was short-lived, and only a few weeks later, he bought a saloon. In late August 1879, Doc got into an argument with a local gunman by the name of Mike Gordon. The two took the argument to the street, where Doc politely invited Gordon to start shooting whenever he felt like it. Obviously, Gordon accepted this invitation and, possibly more obviously, wound up dead with three shots in his belly. Again, a lynch mob formed with plans to lynch Holiday, and Doc headed back to Dodge City. However, he arrived only to find that Wyatt had gone on to a new silver strike in a place called Tombstone, Arizona. 
Big Nose Kate was also nowhere to be seen in Dodge City, and there being nothing to hold him there, Doc struck out west, bound for Tombstone. Unknown to Doc at the time, Big Nose Kate was also en route to the new boomtown of Tombstone, and the two ran into each other in Prescott, Arizona. Doc, on a gambling binge, was winning heavily at the tables and pocketing $40,000 in winnings, a princely sum at the time. Kate was happy to keep him company in his newfound riches. In the early summer of 1880, the two finally reached Tombstone. The events that followed in Tombstone are well recounted in the O.K. Corral story, told earlier, and of course in the 29th Captain's Film Institute movie of the week to be recounted after this story. After an expectedly eventful couple of years traveling throughout the West post the O.K. Corral incident, Holiday's health continued to deteriorate. As a realist, Doc was not one to believe in miraculous cures, but hoping that the Yampa hot springs and sulfur vapors might improve his health, he headed for Glenwood Springs, Colorado in May 1887. (laughs) Registering at the fashionable Hotel Glenwood, he grew steadily worse spending his last 57 days in bed at the hotel, and he was delirious for at least 14 of them. On November 8, 1887, he awoke clear-eyed and asked for a glass of whiskey. It was given to him, and he drank it down with enjoyment. Then, looking down at his bare feet, he said, This is funny and died. He always figured he would be killed with his boots on. Doc Holliday had come west years before knowing his days were numbered. He never believed that he would die peacefully in bed. He often said that his end would come from lead poisoning at the end of a rope, a knife in his ribs, or that he might possibly drink himself to death. His obituary, appearing in the Leadville Carbonate Chronicle on November 14, 1887, stated the following. There is scarcely one in the country who had acquired a greater notoriety than Doc Holliday, who enjoyed the reputation of being one of the most fearless men on the frontier, and whose devotion to his friends and the climax of the fiercest ordeal was inextinguishable. It was this, more than any other faculty, that secured for him the reverence of a large circle who were prepared on the shortest notice to rally to his relief. The Glenwood Springs Cemetery sits high high upon a steep hill overlooking the valley below. But at the time of his death, the steep road was too icy. So they buried him at the bottom of the hill with the intention of moving his body when the ice thawed. But they never did. Many years later, a housing development was built at the base of the hill, and though a marker sits in the cemetery, his actual remains are probably buried in somebody's backyard. Doc Holliday claimed he almost lost his life a total of nine times. Four attempts were made to hang him, and he was shot at five times. How many men he killed in response is now and forever will be unknown.
my redhead mess bed tear shed queen be my squeaks The stage smells tells hells bells miss spells knocks me on my knees It didn't hurt flirt blood squirt stuff shirt like me on a tree After I count down three rounds and hell I'll be in good company gentlemen that was the dead south within hell i'll be in good company um before we dive into the next story and the final story of tonight's episode of nonsense this show uh sorry lee sorry emily we run out of time for the micro nations 59 minutes into the show it's just not gonna happen i'm so sorry um Quick little update on the Captain's Bounty. Every week I've told you about the fact that you have an opportunity to win $100 from my very own piratical pocket. All you have to do to earn a little bit of my Captain's Gold uh, delivered to you in whatever manner you most, uh, most appreciate. You can have cash. You can have PayPal. You can have Venmo. I can send you a check. I can't send you a check. I don't have a fucking checkbook. It's not 1989. Um, you can have a fucking... I can ship you $100 worth of something from Amazon. I can ship you $100 worth of trinkets and toys like you got at the dentist office when you were a child from the Oriental Trading Company. Whatever you decide you want, I will give you $100. All you have to do is refer your friends to Nonsense the Show. If your friend listens to Nonsense the Show and sends me an email to beardandbones at gmail.com, telling me what they like about the show and that you referred them, I will put a little mark next to your name on a tally list. Whoever has the most tallies by the time we get to episode number 250 of Nonsense the Show, that's eight episodes away, 
we'll win $100. It's that simple. You can choose to share it with your friends or not. It's not my business. They're your friends. You figure it out. All I'm saying is let's check in and see how many entries we have. Uh, stand by one. Let me go ahead and find my list here. Let's see. Hang on. Uh, we're just going to go ahead and check this out. Don't fucking judge me. I got an old printer. Okay, here's the deal. Looking at the, uh, the printout here, it looks like we have, oh, that's right, zero entries. I don't know what you guys have against free money and telling your friends about cool entertainment options, but uh, damn, y'all, you don't want my money. I don't understand it. All you got to do is tell your friends, have them write me an email. Take them five minutes after they listen to the show, of course. Uh, but it's a great show. It's worth their time. You should tell them. So if you want 100 bucks, man, uh, the closer we get to episode 250, the easier this is going to be. All you've got to do is refer some people. But I'd prefer if you don't wait till the end and just refer one person. I'd prefer you refer a bunch of people. And let's get more people on the nonsense bandwagon, huh? Help a brother out. I'll cheer for you. I'll whoop. I'll holler. I'll say your name on this show. It'll be a beautiful situation. You don't want to fucking miss it. I know you don't. God bless the internet. God bless the internet is right. All right, ladies and gentlemen, it is now time for us to talk about entry number 29 into the Captain's Film Institute Film of the Week. This week, we have one of the greatest films of all time. Uh, This is one of Maggie's personal favorites. It's one of my personal favorites. It's probably one of your personal favorites. We're going to talk about the 1993 George P. Cosmatos classic, starring Kurt Russell, Val Kilmer, Sam Elliott, Bill Paxton, and, of course, Deadwood's very own Powers Booth. That's right, ladies and gentlemen, we're talking about Tombstone. After success cleaning up Dodge City, Wyatt Earp moves to Tombstone, Arizona, and wishes to get rich in obscurity. He meets his brothers there, as well as his old friend, Doc Holliday. A band of outlaws that call themselves the Cowboys are causing problems in the region with various acts of random violence, and inevitably, they come into confrontation with Holliday and the Earps, which leads to a legendary shootout near the OK Corral. This retelling of the Earp and Clanton feud also follows up the gunfight at the OK Corral with a look at the bloody consequences of the showdown when Wyatt Earp took to the vengeance trail. Every week when I pick a film of the week, I pick uh, three categories. I pick a favorite line, a favorite scene, and a favorite character. Some weeks it's difficult. Some weeks it's easy. This is an easy week. My favorite line in the movie is Wyatt Earp talking to, uh, I believe his name is Johnny Tyler. We'll get to him in a minute. Uh, There it is, Johnny Tyler, played by one Billy Bob Thornton. Uh, My favorite line is in that scene, Wyatt Earp is slapping him around, the loudmouth pharaoh dealer who's bullying people in the saloon. He slaps him around. He gives him a little bit of shit, and he says, you going to do something, or are you just going to stand there and bleed? And I always thought it was one of the most badass tough guy lines in the history of cinema, so now you know it too. To no surprise, my favorite scene in the movie is Wyatt taking over the Pharaoh game from Johnny Tyler. The follow-up scene where the Earps meet uh, Doc and Johnny Tyler, played by Billy Bob Thornton, uh, when Johnny comes for revenge is, of course, also great, and I'll go ahead and lump those two together. Wyatt walks in, takes over the man's game, embarrasses him in front of everybody, slaps him around, and then drags him out by the ear and throws him into the street. Moments later, Wyatt is outside talking to his brothers, telling him the good news about how he just obtained a 25% stake in a Pharaoh game, and Johnny Tyler grabs a shotgun and sneaks up on them in ambush. Before Johnny Tyler has a chance to pull that trigger and end the life of Wyatt, Virgil, or Morgan Earp, Doc Holliday steps off the porch and says, Johnny Tyler! What are you doing with that shotgun? 
He then greets the, greets the Earp brothers, and they begin having a conversation where they completely dismiss and seemingly forget about Johnny Tyler and his shotgun. And all of his uh, revenge fantasies are completely neutered, as is his tough guy credibility. They won't even stoop to taking the shotgun from his hands after, after, uh, after uh, Doc Holliday so, so rudely dismisses him. Oh, Johnny, I forgot you were there. You may go now. And Wyatt tells him to leave the shotgun. He goes to hand it to him butt first, and he says, leave it. He tells him to put it on the ground. He's not even going to resort to touching it, taking it from his hands. <laughs> it's a great scene again a real tough guy scene one of those uh just one of those classic moments in a movie that as a young man you always think about man i hope i'm that tough someday a uh, close runner-up is the doc versus johnny ringo battle of wits what do you think darling should i hate him johnny ringo does his fancy gun twirling to much to the delight of the the uh, the other customers and patrons of the saloon and doc holiday very rudely very arrogantly very dismissively answers him by spinning his cup around in exactly the same manner. My favorite character is a tie between Doc Holliday, because of course, shout out General J. Tater Tate, and Virgil Earp, who is a man who is noble, true, and disciplined. He's a man of principle. He's going to do the right thing. And of course, he pays for it. A classic line in the movie, the line quoted by Doc at the end of the fight at the OK Corral, is historically true, as are many other moments in the film, to the best of our knowledge. It was reported in the Tombstone Papers reporting on the fight. When confronted by one of the cowboys at Point Blank Range, a cowboy reportedly said, I got you now, Doc, you son of a bitch! To which Doc gleefully retorted, You're a daisy if you do. Val Kilmer practiced for a long time on his quick-draw speed, and he gave his character a southern aristocrat accent as he was preparing for the role of Doc Holliday. This southern accent is, in fact, an authentic touch as Holliday was a cousin, several generations removed, of Margaret Mitchell, the author of Gone with the Wind, a true southern gentleman. Val Kilmer has been quoted as saying that screenwriter Kevin Jari insisted that the actors wear real wool costumes in accordance with the time period. He wanted that authenticity. Unfortunately, in the Birdcage Theater scene, Val Kilmer says a thermometer on the set read 134 degrees Fahrenheit. That's pretty fucking hot. Kilmer suggested jokingly that that was the reason Doc Holliday killed so many people. It's just like he wore wool in the summer in the Arizona Territory, and, and that made him mad. You'd probably kill people too, is the, uh, the subtext on that statement. <laughs> Um, as always, with the Captain's Film Institute, we look for a theme. We look for the same thing every week just to see if it's there. And, of course, there is a little bit of improvisation in this film. Doc Holliday's wink to Billy Clanton just before the culmination of the OK Corral gunfight was completely improvised Val by Val Kilmer. It was also Val Kilmer's idea for Doc to whistle on the way to the OK Corral, showing that he was unconcerned because he was a dead man walking. Wyatt Earp died in uh, 1929, having never been so much as scratched by a single bullet. A remarkable feat for a legendary lawman and gunfighter of the era. The fact that his name is known above, for instance, Virgil's, the marshal of Tombstone at the time of the famous gunfight, is largely due to Wyatt's self-promotion. Before his death, he walked in Hollywood circles, and John Wayne once claimed to have met him, apparently modeling his famous walk on that of Wyatt Earp. And the lesson you, the loyal listeners of Nonsense the Show, can take from that, uh, that particular bit of information is promote yourself. 
Be your own self-promoter. Take the P.T. Barnum Wyatt Earp approach and build yourself up because if you're not going to do it, who the fuck is? The expression, I'm your huckleberry, spoken by Doc, means, quote, I'm the perfect man for the job. It could indeed be a reference to Mark Twain's Huckleberry Finn, then known as the sidekick of Tom Sawyer before Huck got his own book. But in the late 1800s, a burial casket would have three handles on each side, which were used to lift and carry the casket. Each of these handles was called a huckle, and a person carrying a casket was called a hucklebearer, which is an early ancestor of today's term, pallbearer. Contrary to popular belief, when Doc Holliday meets Johnny Ringo in the woods, Holliday is not saying, I'm your huckleberry, as if he is accepting a challenge, but rather he is actually saying, I'm your hucklebearer, implying that he... Holiday will carry Johnny to his grave. If you listen closely to the dialogue, you should be able to spot it. As we said earlier, Wyatt Earp went to Hollywood, and he became a consultant to the motion picture industry advising on westerns after he moved there in 1915. He frequently visited the sets of several silent films directed by John Ford and starring an actor by the name of Harry Carey. No, not the legendary Cubs radio man. In the movie Tombstone, the role of Marshal Fred White was played by none other than Harry Carey Jr., son of that silent film star. In the movie Tombstone, Curly Bill Brocious is not charged with the, Marshall, uh, with the murder of Marshal Fred White as there were no witnesses to the shooting. In real life, charges were not filed because prior to his death, Marshal White explained that the shooting was an accident. Curly Bill in his drunken stupor accidentally pulled the trigger and shot the marshal in the groin. He did not die in the street, as is evidenced by the movie, but he died two days later, comfortably-ish, in bed. Another historical truth, in 1928, Billy Breckenridge published his Memoirs of Life in Tombstone and the Old West, titled Hell Dorado, Bringing the Law to the Mesquite. Wider was portrayed as a thief, a pimp, a crooked gambler, and a murderer, contrary to the image Herb had built around himself after these events occurred. Earp, of course, loudly protested the book's contents until his death in 1921, and er, correction, in 1929, and his wife continued afterward. In the ensuing years, though, historical investigations have since proven Breckenridge's description of Earp to be accurate. Some years after the death of Doc Holliday, Wyatt was quoted in... Oh, we already read that quote. We don't need to worry about that. Let's skip ahead. Uh, George P. Cosmatos liked that in the script, the gunfight at the OK Corral was not the end of something. It was, in fact, the beginning of something. The OK Corral is sort of the midpoint of the movie. It's designed to show the delineation between Wyatt trying to leave law enforcement and gunfighter work to settle down and build a prosperous future with his brothers and their families. And then the OK Corral incident occurs. And afterwards, everything changes. Wyatt lost his brothers, he lost his wife, he lost his family, he lost all of that potential peaceful future. And so he chooses the vengeance trail. Val Kilmer played Doc Holliday in the film, a a role previously played in three different 1959 television productions by none other than Adam West, who later became Batman in 1966. It was upon seeing this film that Joel Schumacher was inspired to cast Kilmer in Batman Forever in 1995. Wyatt Earp tells his brothers that he was only ever in one shootout where he killed a man. That man, historically, was George Hoy in Dodge City, Kansas. 
In the pre-dawn hours of July 28, 1878, Hoy and several cowboys got drunk and began indiscriminately discharging their pistols in town, scaring the people. Wyatt Earp, serving as assistant marshal with his partner policeman Bat Masterson, confronted the cowboys, who subsequently fled. Earp, Masterson, and at least one armed civilian discharged their weapons as they ran, and one bullet struck Hoy, either in his arm or in his leg. He kept on his horse for a short ride before eventually falling off, and, and then dying of infection. Though it was difficult to determine who fired the shot at the time, witnesses, as well as Ed Masterson, gave Earp the credit. So this, again, is one of those situations where, where Wyatt Earp is known as a legendary gunman. Prior to the shootout at the OK Corral, he had only killed one man, and it was essentially with a lucky shot, if, in fact, he was the one to do it. A little bit of historical trivia for you, just something that I didn't know, and now I will be doing some reading about in the future. At one point, Wyatt says that they'll all be, quote, richer than Croesus. Croesus was a Greek king in 560 BC who was renowned for his wealth and is credited with issuing the first gold coins for general monetary use. So take that for what you fucking will. Uh, Val Kimmer states that during his death scene, he lay on a bed of ice so that he would shake and feel weird, contributing to his deadly performance. Of course, once you watch the film, you will see that it works. And one last note before we close the show out tonight. Uh, if one looks closely during the scene where Morgan Earp dies, <clears throat> Wyatt's hands are covered in blood. But it doesn't slide off onto Morgan's body when he touches him, nor does it wash off in the pouring rain. This is very much a metaphor for Wyatt's life as a gunslinger, and he can't bid farewell to his bloodstained past. Forgive me, little sneeze. Which is something he definitely tries to do in this movie. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is of course the end of our show this evening. Thank you so much for tuning in to Nonsense, the show episode number 242, Trouble in Tombstone. My name is Captain Nick. Please tell your friends. Please leave us a review. Please write me a message, beardandbonesgmail.com, beardandbones on the Instagram. Let me know what you think. Tell your friends. Captain's Bounty still up for grabs. Uh, hi, Maggie. I love you. Hope you had a great time. We'll see you next week. Stay tuned for music after the credits.
He asked for a 13, but they drew a 31. Friends say he's trying too hard, and he's not quite hip. But in his own mind, he's not. He's the dumbest trap. Give it to me, baby. Oh, 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 oh. Give it to me, baby. Oh, 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 oh. Give it to me, baby. Goodbye.